0: Hi, this is Phil Valentine. Don't fall for any hustle. You're listening to the Straight Hustling Podcast out of Nashville.
1: Ew. Hey, you're listening to the Straight Hustling Podcast. Got Dick Darren, we got Money Mike and Stu. Got a good uh, interview tonight with uh, Phil Valentine. He's going to come on the show and talk about a little politics and uh, how he got started in talk radio, and hopefully give us a few pointers on interviewing people since we don't know what the hell we're doing. But we're trying to make it happen.
2: Yeah, I was hoping he could tell us what we're going to do wrong or
1: what we've been doing wrong or what we might do wrong, but you never know. Looks like we're probably doing it right. I think. I think he's going to say we're doing a good job. What do you think, Stu? I believe he is. Uh, How can he not say we're doing good? We're the best damn podcast in Tennessee. That's right. Michael put his money up against it. Bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, a whole (laughs) stat. So y'all... Y'all excited uh, Super Bowl Patriots, Super Bowl winners. It was a good game all the way down to the end. You know,
2: I could have coached that game. Yeah, let's uh, wait to the very last minute, make a comeback. Oh, let's throw the ball on the two-yard line. Yeah, that
1: was the most – the
2: stupidest call I've ever seen since I've been watching football in my life.
1: he would have made it, everybody would have been like, oh, man, that was awesome, great call. You know
2: what? The thing is, you never – I mean, you got the number one running back that's
1: getting – you're on the half yard line, and he's getting. It he was two yard. A half yard, wasn't it? I, I think it was, it was on the
2: two yard two? line. He, he was
1: getting what three yards to carry that night. I don't know, but if he'd have got stopped with the time ran out, and then they'd have said, "Why he don't you throw the ball?"
2: Somebody, somebody <laughs> needs to tell the Seahawks. You know when Belichick steals a playbook, he does it right. Don't steal the Titans playbook. <laughs> That's what they did. <laughs> yeah, the Titans play. Yeah, They've been watching the, the Titans. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: choke, but they don't. I mean, the Titans didn't have. A, they don't have a chance to. That even was choke.
1: pretty crazy though. Even when they had the ball, they couldn't down it because they were in the end zone. So I didn't. Pretty interesting when the Patriots got it back off the interception. They couldn't down the ball because they were in the end zone right there. So. He
2: could have downed it and it came out on the 20, wouldn't
1: it? They'd have to kick the ball off still with a few seconds. Oh, left I see there. what
2: you're saying. Yeah, once they got the – okay.
1: Yeah. yeah, on the turnover it would have been safety. So, I don't know, man. I, I don't I don't try to second guess them guys making all the millions of dollars. I guess they've done something right. But, yeah, everybody thought he should have ran the ball. But
2: I mean, I, I mean, I would have. And I think 90% of the coaches out in America today would have, said, would have agreed. I don't know. You but know, they, uh,
1: they could have thought they're
2: expecting the run. I bet you after yeah.
1: watching that play, they would have ran them <laughs> <laughs> well, off. I even over, heard they, do over do <laughs> over? I heard the guys on the uh, TV talking about Belichick was letting the clock run out, and they were like, "Oh man, he should let them score, and yeah. that way it'll give them time." And you know that was them. And he made the decision to let the clock run almost almost all the way down. If they would have scored, they wouldn't have had much time left Not to even try there. to do anything. But so I mean, you just never know if he'd have let them go in. They probably would have won. The Seattle Seahawks probably would have won. So it's them, them crazy plays that turn the game around. Yeah.
2: What about that halftime show? That was frigging off the hook. Did you like that? I liked that
1: stage. That stage. Oh, the was stage was Insane. Cool. You
2: know what I mean? And I didn't really
1: like the. It's kind of weird to me. I'm like, you got all these guys watching the Super Bowl, and then they had like a thing that more like to me appealed to like younger teenagers or something, or. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lenny Kravitz. I like that. That
2: was cool. But. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really. Think the line was anything so special
1: or anything like that. I just thought that stage was the stage was yeah, The show was cool, but yeah, man, I'd have rather had like something else on there, man. Something something tallicer. Yeah, <laughs> it
2: something that it had made the mood of football, yeah. like you know, destruction and something. You know what I mean? You know, you know
1: nothing. That
2: was candy.
1: It was yeah. candy
2: pop. Remember? Yeah, because they had all
1: them. Uh, the girls on there and like different colored things and, and not, not one wardrobe. Mal Ro- wardrobe malfunction I was no, I'm upset, upset because
2: I you know I mean I Lenny Kravitz
1: that. had his shirt like open I think yeah but you know no,
2: no one wants to see his nipple everybody wanted to see KP's you know what I'm saying we were hoping she was going to rip them flames off and some titty pop out or something we were really open
1: but it. yeah was... she had a cool show like they picked her up and carried her across up in the air yeah, it was the, pretty cool as but... a
2: firework yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was
1: I was really impressed with that. Yeah, I'd rather had some big rocking group up there, man, tearing it up. Than yeah, they don't have to do that. How well. about
2: Zach Wilde on a freaking trapeze flying through there or some <laughs> shit just, you know, jamming? I mean. When they do
1: get a rock group, it's always like The Who or somebody that's like, you guys got, you know. The Geriatrics of Rock. You guys got two years left to live. Let's put you yeah, out there yeah. on a the Super Bowl. <laughs> with an IV and a freaking, you know, freaking gurney. Check your, check your pulse every few minutes. <laughs> Good Lord! All right, well, we're gonna uh, talk to Phil Valentine. Talk about his talk show. He should be here any second. You on, Phil? I guess you're not on. Phil, the heavyweight champion, the conservative talk radio on over a hundred radio stations, actor, producer, and author. Phil, you on? Hello, Phil Valentine. How you doing, man? This is uh, Dick with uh, Straight Hustling. Yes. How are you? Great, man. We got uh got a couple of my buddies here. We got Mike and also Stu. And I uh, wanted to thank you for talking to us, man. And it's pretty awesome to get you on the phone and kind of talk to you a little bit. So you you on the road somewhere right now? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm heading to the house. Oh, yeah. Okay. We were wondering if you took the day off. <laughs>
0: No, I got off. Sometimes I can feed stuff to the West Coast, or to the East Coast a little early and take an hour off. So that's what I did today. Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: All right. One of the things we wanted to kind of talk about was kind of how you got started in radio and um, coming to Nashville. Sure. You ready now for me to talk about that?
0: Oh, yeah. If you're ready, we're ready. All right. I got about three hours of it. No. <laughs> uh, actually, I came, you know, I was in music radio before I came to Nashville and I was working in Greensboro, North Carolina. And, um, was program director of a radio station, an oldie station, and they decided to change formats, and so I found myself out of a job as, as you know, the, air staff, everybody else normally knows. Format changes, they just wipe everybody clean and they start over. And so, I went, I didn't, they they, they gave me no severance day, and um, so I went to work for an ad agency, selling jingles, and that lasted about three months, I made a hundred bucks on, on, uh, Strictly commissioned, so I made a hundred bucks in three months. And I said, you know, I got to get back into what I know, which is radio. And there were no jobs in Greensboro, so I had nothing to lose. Packed up my bags, got in the car, and drove to Nashville, and got a job at a um, at a uh, uh, health club, actually a tennis club, Westside Athletic Club, and selling memberships for twelve grand a year. And then I uh, got a part time job at ninety six Kids, which was the top forty station doing weekends and within three months that part-time job became full-time and i was back in the game in nashville are
1: you still uh selling the part-time memberships on the side of the gym
0: no i, I actually did it. <laughs> i i stayed a member of west side athletic club for years but then when um i moved across town and then let it lap so i haven't been there in years but it's
1: still there <laughs> what about your uh so everybody calls you uncle phil how'd that kind
0: of come about The old Uncle Phil thing. Well, um, it's, I'm, you know, I think I actually started referring to myself as Uncle Phil because, you know, just sort of in a congenial way, we talked about, well, you know, your Uncle Phil would never lie to you and this kind of stuff. And then people started picking up. I think I said it once and people started calling me Uncle Phil. And then next thing you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's one of those things that sort of sticks. And here I am as old Uncle Phil, your favorite uncle. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I hear that all the time. I was wondering what how that came. I didn't know if it was a creepy
0: thing or what. No, it's just something <laughs> as innocent as that. I just you know, referred to myself one day like that, and it just stuck.
1: So on your first time you went on live on the radio, kind of what was that like for you? Was you kind of pumped up and ready for that or nervous? or?
0: Well, you're talking about as far as talk radio is concerned, right?
1: Well, so that's one of my questions, too. So you did some radio, and then you did some talk. Uh, radio, right? Yeah. You did some with music. Yeah,
0: I started off with music radio, and, and that, you know, I went to a radio school, so, uh, oh, okay. you know, music radio is certainly not as intimidating as talk radio, because you got you talk about 15 seconds, and you play a record. So, you know, I learned how to do that in, in radio school, so I was pretty well-equipped with that and ready to do it, but the first time, you know, I had to bag the program director. I was working for uh, WLAC-FM, which was a an adult contemporary station. And they had W I C A M and I wanted to talk radio and this was around nineteen ninety. And um, so I thought it was programmed directed to the AM and he said, You don't have any experience doing talk radio. I'm not gonna take a chance on you and I mean pretty much I mean he was nice about it and I knew him and he was a colleague, but he says no. I mean we gotta have somebody that's done this before. So I used to you know, talk to him in front of his office. He was you know for a few minutes each day. And just talk about the issues and things like that. And I was just kind of, you know, warming him up with the idea. And this is on a Friday, and I was doing afternoons, and it was in a break. I was playing a record, and, and came down there was talking to him. And the guy that's supposed to do Saturday morning called him while I was there. And he said, I've had a, something come up. I can't make it tomorrow morning. And this guy said, "Yeah, he's got to go out of town. He couldn't do it. So he looked at me, and he said, you're on. <laughs> As of tomorrow morning, you're on. I said, well, cool. So I'd never done a talk show before. I thought it was going to be easy. It is extremely (laughs) difficult because you got to be prepared for it. I mean, it's not talking 15 or 20 seconds at a time. It's talking in blocks of 15 minutes at a time. So I got on there that first morning on a Saturday morning, and I think I still have the tape somewhere. Some woman somewhere in Nashville called me, and she had just shot up heroin. Oh, wow. And, um, And she starts talking to me about it. She says, you know, I'm, I just shot up some heroin. I said, well, you know, cause there no callers on Saturday morning. I mean, it was just, you know, one of those things. And, and so I said, well, heck, tell me what it's like. And she's describing everything. And we talked for a while. And then some other callers start coming in, you know, talking about drug legalization and drugs. And, and so I would put her on hold. And I'd go back to her periodically and say, and she was just getting more and more spaced out. and oh, man. But it was great radio. I mean, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better caller. <laughs> My first caller was a drug addict, which ended up being a lot of fun and, and sparked a lot of uh, discussion. So the guy in the program director that told me that he would never let me do talk radio, he came back in on Monday listened to the tape of of me doing the show. And he had a, a tandem on, on in mornings. It was a British woman and a guy he had. Uh, that he paired them together. He fired the guy before even talking to me and, and put me in there. I said, look, I'm doing afternoon talk radio. I know, I mean, afternoon music radio. I don't know if I'm ready to make, it. I just wanted to fill in some. I'm not you know, sure I want to make this a career. He said, well, you're starting tomorrow. I mean, you know, so I did mu- music radio in the afternoon and then talk radio in the morning for about six months doing both of them. I did both shifts. Wow. You lived was there. Spirit. Yeah, it was brutal. And then a new program director came in. They wanted to, uh, put somebody else in the morning. So I just went back to doing music radio until 1990. That was in 1990 or 91. And 95, uh, Gaylord bought WTN. You know, they owned Opera Land and all that and all the hotels. And they hired me to do, uh, a morning show. And that's when they launched Super Talk in Nashville. And I was the morning host. And as they say, the rest is history.
1: Yeah, yeah. That'll teach everybody out there to not call in sick for work because you might get replaced.
0: That's exactly right. Don't don't ever let your guard down. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, man, I listen to you almost every day on the way home, and I really enjoy the show. And the first time I kind of uh, uh, actually heard about you was back during the uh, state income tax when that big push was going on. And you guys had the show going on downtown and trying to get people to come down there and honk the horns and everything. And got more popularity then, right, because everybody was really – Against the tax. Well, yeah, that and that's
0: yeah, you know, that's when really I guess you could say that that I that that we took talk radio from just talking about it, doing something about it. And I get again, it was on a Saturday. I got a call from uh, Marsha Blackburn. She was state senator at the time, and she said she called me. She says uh, they're getting ready to pass state income tax, and you need to do something about it. I, <laughs> Marsha, I'm getting ready to go take my kids to the pool. I don't know what the <laughs> heck I'm supposed to be able to do about an income tax. And she says, well, I mean, we're desperate. We got I mean, something's got to be done. I mean, they're going to pass this thing today on a Saturday when nobody's watching. And she said, I'm just, you know, I don't know what to do. And I said, all right, well, let me think on this thing for a minute. So I said, okay. Um, so I called my program director and I said, look, they're getting ready to pass the state income tax. I think we need to go down there and broadcast. And he said, I think that's a horrible idea. Nobody's <laughs> going to be listening. And I said, well, I mean, I cannot just, Let this go and not have, had done anything about it. And so he said, okay, we'll get the equipment down there. And so I said, well, meet me at noon. And so I did. And I called Steve Gill. He was, you know, doing, uh, morning. I was doing afternoons at the time I'd come back from Philadelphia and he was doing morning. I called Steve. I said, here's the deal. I'm going to be down there at noon. And if you want to, you know, show up, I would love to have you. So about noon, Steve showed up and there was one aide from, I don't know if it was Jimmy Nate's office somebody who was pushing the income tax. And we started, we set up right across, you know, like we uh, ended up doing countless times after that on Legislative Plaza, set up, had the speakers out there. And of course the news is on from, you know, the top of the hour till six minutes after. So we hadn't even started the broadcast. This guy, this clown comes walking across the street and he looks it up and it's about three minutes after and he says, Ooh, big crowd. <laughs> and I said, look, look, you so and so, you wait. And so, once that we came out of the news, and I didn't know how many people would actually be listening to the radio on a Saturday, you know, Saturday at noon. And I said, here's the deal. Uh, we're down here at Legislative Plus They're getting ready to pay the did state income tax. We need you folks to come in here and blow your horn.
1: Yeah.
0: And they, and, uh, and, and get their attention. And they said, okay. So, uh, after about, 10 minutes, there were probably 10 or 12 cars circling. Within about 30 minutes, there were 100 uh, or so circling. There were people out all on the street. And then within the hour, there were probably several thousand people that are either honking horns or, or you know, showing up with homemade placards and signs and everything else. And uh, I saw the folks up there. You know, you can look up in the uh, Capitol. They're, they're looking down from their offices. And, you know, the speaker's off and everything They pulled back those velvet curtains and they, you know, they saw us first setting up and they sort of laughing at us, you know, looking and smiling and pointing all that stuff. And then, you know, about an hour into it with all those people, they look down there and their eyes are big as saucers and they go, uh-oh. And so what happened that day was they delayed the vote. I mean, we beat them back that day and we went, okay, all right, we got a little power here. The people are showing up. And so every time they talk about doing an income tax, I'd get a call from somebody. Marsha or somebody inside the state legislature, they'd say, Come down I mean we would we would be down there within fifteen minutes of hearing about it and all of a sudden there'd be several thousand people that would follow us and it came to be a regular routine yeah. of showing what can be done if you really want to stop something like this. And the people showed up. And I, you know, I tell people you know, have a state of five million people, and maybe at the most we had five thousand people down there, so that's a small percentage of the population, but what a difference that small population made, and people—they they can't make a difference. Absolutely, can make a difference, and this was one of those clear cases of how.
1: Yeah, that was the first time I really got involved in anything like that. We showed up down there a couple of times, honked the horns, and we actually had a group of us that left uh, work one day and kind of went down there during lunch. and And I remember they had—you guys were all out there—and they had some tables and had some uh, poster boards and stuff. And it was probably not the. The right thing to do, but I remember I filled out a big, uh, poster board that said, I'm a dumbass and pointed to the guy next to me that was had, a, that was for the state tax. And so that's still funny that I, I think about that going down there. It's kind of, well, funny.
0: I mean, you, you're not alone. I mean, there's so many people I come into contact with who have, um, who have, you know, memories of that or, you know, and, and it's such a, I remember the first time we did it on that Saturday, I had such a feeling of patriotism. I, you know, I never experienced it like it was, it was such a, an empowering feeling that uh, that you could actually make a difference. And, and and we got rather bold about it. I mean, you know, they're not going to pass an income tax. And as Gil said one time, you know, they only have to win once. We have to win every time. And so we were down there. Anytime we heard that they were going to be doing a, you know, trying to vote on the state income tax until finally, you know, and I, I actually wrote a book about this called Tax Revolt. Uh, they talked about that tax revolt and, and others throughout American history and sort of centers around what we did in Tennessee. But the last time they tried this was when they actually, you know, they would never bring it to a vote unless they think they have the votes to win. You know, Navy, uh Jimmy Nafy, yeah. who was the Speaker of the House, would never bring it up unless he thought it was going to win. There are a variety of reasons that, you know, just demoralizing, but once you vote on something and it and it fails, then you can't bring it up again to let that next that same session. You have to wait until the next let you know, you have to wait a year to bring it up. So they would never vote on it unless they had the votes and they kept thinking they had the votes and they tried it and then we would come down there with the protest and beat it back. So finally one day they thought that they had cajoled enough votes to pass the thing. So they called for a vote and we were there and, uh, they kept the vote open for two hours because uh, about five people who said they were going to vote got cold feet once they heard the horn honkers out there and the people screaming at them. And, uh, Jimmy Nafee, you know, he, he calls for the vote and then are not enough votes. And I, you know, I remember. He's out there, the the speaker's uh, podium, going. Does anybody want to change your vote? And he's looking out there. And as I described in the book, he he came down from the uh, from the podium and walked through the the floor of the uh, the legislature like somebody had just crawled out of a wrecked airplane. I mean, this guy is bewildered. He's almost staggering. He's like, you know, what the heck happened? We had this thing passed, and and so he called the five folks. That had that had changed their mind. They had voted present instead of voting yes, and uh, he called them into his office and for two hours browbeat these folks, and they would not crack. And so uh, he came out and suspended the vote, and that was the last time that an income tax was even thought about being brought up in the state of Tennessee. It was for all intents and purposes dead and buried until, of course, they just passed you know the thing from the people to say that we just passed this last election mm-hmm. that says we can never have an income tax in this state. So. Uh, you know, after all of that work, we have finally gotten to a point where we will never have an income tax, and it's because people responded and showed up. Yeah,
1: you, you guys had a lot to do with that to really get the people involved. But uh, so we'll never have a state income tax unless Obama's listening to this and wants to sign one of the executive orders. He might.
0: Yeah. Out. <laughs> yeah, even he can't do that. There'd be an uprising in this state so fast it would make it head spin. So yeah, then, you know, a, a governor can't do it. Nobody, I mean, we have it, it's now in our constitution that we cannot have a state income tax. And I mean, it was in the constitution before, but it was, you know, the, the wording people say, well, I don't even mean, you know, it, that depends on what his is and all that kind of garbage. So the, uh, you know, the Republican controlled general assembly now, uh, just reworded it so that it's unambiguous and it's perfectly clear and, and they put it in the constitution at the end of it.
1: On a more like a national level, so what do you think about this eight trillion dollars in debt? Are we ever going to be able to crawl out from under that?
0: No, there's no way. And and you know we're going to, we're looking at now. I've talked to some of the experts out there. They think the big the big problem is, I mean, the debt is the big problem, but it's the interest we're having to pay on the yeah. debt. Right now, we're paying between nine and ten percent of the money that comes to the treasury on interest on the debt. and and and, and you can break this down and say, okay. You know, this is like your credit card bill. Uh, how much of it is actually going to pay for, you know, to pay the credit card down, and how much is being paid for interest? And a lot of people just pay the minimum payment and pay the interest, and they don't ever do anything as far as the principal is concerned. That's basically what we're doing, and not only are we not paying the principal down, we're adding to it with deficits every year. So we're at $18 trillion right now um, The the to service that debt is taking about, Ten percent, nine to ten percent of the money that's coming in. What the experts are saying at this rate, if we keep you know piling on the debt like we're doing, that uh, by the year twenty thirty, it'll be over forty percent of the money that's coming into the treasury will go to pay the interest on the debt alone. And so I've talked to the people across the aisle, the liberals. You know, within by twenty forty, it's going to be fifty percent or more. So we're going to be arguing over what to spend money on, whether it's defense or social programs or infrastructure or whatever. But in just a few years, we're going to be arguing over half the money yeah. because half the money is going to be going to pay the interest on the debt. And so we ought to all be concerned about not adding to the debt and getting the deficits down and keeping it at something that's, you know, right now only 10% of what we're bringing in.
1: Yeah, and on a personal level, once you... If you're charging and charging and charging you have a limit you're finally gonna reach, but it doesn't seem like these guys
0: have a limit. They just Yeah, we don't have a limit. People. I mean and, and what'll what ultimately happen is what's happened with Greece. In the last hundred years Greece has defaulted on their debt five times. Essentially what they do is they wipe the slate clean. <laughs> if you loan the money, whether you're the United States or Great Britain or whatever, sorry, you're screwed, you lost your money. And then they regroup, and then a few years later they start, you know, borrowing more money, and some of these idiots come along and start lending them more money. I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, but what happens with us? We're so big. If we default on our debt, then you know it it it, it has a domino effect with some of these other countries because then they can't pay theirs, and then people start calling notes, and then people start freaking out, and then you know who knows what will happen. But I will tell you this: if we were to default on the debt, we couldn't. We couldn't increase it anymore because nobody would give us any money to increase it. So there is a positive side to that if it doesn't completely mm. annihilate the entire world financially. <laughs> but we got, I mean, yeah,
1: it'd be chaos.
0: That's I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do about it. I mean, but but the people in Washington don't seem to be least, least bit concerned about it.
1: They don't care. Yeah. There's been a lot of stuff about the current administration with the uh, Obamacare and all that. And they have these things that. The current administration believes like Americans are stupid and they have the kind of commercials where you see the guy from the Obamacare saying that. But, uh, so if Jeb Bush gets the Republican nomination, doesn't that kind of make that a fact? That there's a lot of stupid people. <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are on Jeb Bush, but I don't know about another Bush.
0: <laughs> well, as this, uh, Jesse Jackson once said, "Stay on the bushes. <laughs> and, uh, I think that may be a big, maybe good advice. <laughs>
1: I agree. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, no more Bushes, no Clintons, no Bushes, I don't know.
0: So is there anybody? Yeah, lo- I mean, we, we got too many of the dynasty stuff. I mean, we yeah. don't need any more Clintons or Bushes or anybody. I'm looking for, you know, I wrote an editorial last week, a week, couple of weeks ago, about, you know, how the road to conservative victory. And it's a very simple thing. The problem is, and this is a nice problem to have, but that the country is more conservative than it was in 1980, and the Republican Party is far more conservative than it was in 1980, despite what you're hearing from the mainstream media. You've got Republican governors at record numbers. You've got Republican legislatures. And, you know, Tennessee, we at well, what we got. One, uh, Democrat congressman. North Carolina is controlled by the Republicans. The Republican governor, Republican House, Republican Senate. There are a record number of Republican legislatures across the country that there hasn't been since Reconstruction. And so what happens is that brings in a lot more conservative candidates into the Republican primary. And that's been the problem the two election cycles of 2008 and and 2012 was that we had so many conservatives that were in the race and uh, like a couple of moderates. And so, you know, John McCain, if you go back and look at the stance, by Super Tuesday in 2008 when he's running, he clinched the nomination. I mean, Fred Thompson dropped out, Duncan Hunter dropped out, all these other, you know. The only person who stayed in was Ron Paul, at the bitter in. But the rest of the conservatives dropped out of that race and on Super Tuesday. And John McCain, at that point, had 32% of the total Republican vote so far. And all those primaries, he had gotten 32% of the vote. So he's the, he's the moderate, but because all the, Repu- the uh, conservatives were beating each other up, yeah. they all dropped out, and he got the nomination. And essentially the same thing happened four years later with Mitt Romney. What the Republic, and you just saw what happened with Romney. He gets together with Jeb Bush. They decide only one moderate's going to go forward. And I guarantee you Jeb Bush going to have the same discussion with Chris Christie. I mean, you stay out of this. If you get in this thing, we're going to split the moderate vote. We can't win. As long as the conservatives are in numbers, they will split the vote, and they will lose. And so they've got to do the same thing the moderates are doing. After, I mean, you got Iowa, the caucuses, you got New Hampshire, the primary, and I say after South Carolina, which is the next one that goes south. The, the conservatives get together and say, okay, who has the best chance of winning the rest of us are getting out and putting our, our support behind you. That's the only way the conservatives are going to take back the Republican Party and win the presidency.
1: Well, I hope that happens because it seems like a, whether you like Obama or not, I mean, he's really came in and, and got a lot of things done that he wanted to do, whether anybody liked him or not. It seemed like Republicans take over and they just kind of, you know, they don't want to play hardball. They just want to, hey, let's negotiate and let's kind of talk through this. And I know you don't like this, so we don't want to do anything to hurt any. It get you mad. And so hopefully we can get some conservative in there.
0: Well, you look at Obamacare and, and amnesty, you know, the, the the executive amnesty that we've got now, the only way to stop that is to defund it. And every chance that the uh, Republican Congress has had to defund it, they don't do it. Yeah. And so they think, oh, we're going to pass some more bills. We're going to pass, we're going to repeal uh, Obamacare. And well, that's not going to do anything. These are show votes. You. When, when the rubber meets the road, the only chance you've got to stop it is to not give it any money to choke it off. And they won't do that. And so we're stuck with it. I mean, it's, you know, and, and I, you know, two more years and Obamacare is going to, you know, it, it, it's going to be what it is. And there's not going to be a whole lot of undoing it because the Republicans, whether they take the White House or not, are not going to have the guts to do it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're going to take it away from everybody that's getting it. Talk a little bit about, a. Uh... Oil, So, you know, gas prices are coming down and everybody's happy, but I just don't think I, that's going to be a good thing. Because to me, it seems like they're lowering these prices just to put like, so we had all the frackers and everything going. And it seems like now OPEC's kind of like, well, they're doing good. Let's, it's almost like a big company coming in to lower their prices to put out the
0: competition to me. It seems like they're going to lower Exactly. That's what I've been telling folks for six months. I mean, it, it's obvious. They want oil at $40 a barrel or 30 if they can get it. And when they do that, they put the frackers out of business. And there was a Saudi prince a few weeks ago who said, you will never see a $100 a barrel oil again. And the reason that is, if it goes back at $100 a barrel, the frackers will come back in. So they're going to find the sweet spot at around $70 to $80 a barrel maybe, which means that we're going to have gasoline at about 3 325 a gallon, uh, when all this settles for probably the duration as long as, you know, as, as far as we can see, unless there's some, you know, unforetold unrest in the Middle East that upsets that apple card. But what's ironic about this though is that it's the environmentalists, the dirt people that have brought us to this. They were the ones trying to choke off being able to drill for oil offshore and all these other places that drove the price up which made it feasible for the frackers to come in and do what they're doing and develop the fracking technology to the point where they can actually get the oil we couldn't get to before. But there it's an expensive proposition even now, even with the technology. So it was the environmentalists who pushed us to a point where oil was expensive enough to where frackers could come in, and now they hate the frackers, of course, so they enabled the fracking to take place because they drove the price of oil up, and now, ironically... They had pit the frackers against the Saudis and the OPECers, and the OPECers are trying to bring the price of oil down to the point. So we're going to have low gas prices for the foreseeable future because of the environmentalists, and, and we got them to think for it. They didn't intend it to be this way, but we appreciate it. So once they have run it down
1: so low that they put all these guys out of business, can't they just jack it back up? And it seems like it takes so much money to get these things going again. That I mean, this could just be the, the almost a like a yeah, like a cycle where they just. Keep crushing you and then you gotta put a lot of money back into it to get it going. And, or you think it will just level out and they'll just keep it at a certain point, a certain
0: price? No, I, I believe that Saudi Prince, we probably will never see a hundred dollar barrel oil, uh, again, uh, at least not in the foreseeable future until they're sure that the frackers won't come back in. And you're right. You know, it, it'll only take a few times of getting them burned where they're going, yeah, you know, I'm not doing that again. Cause yeah. as soon as we crank up again, they're going to, they're going to glut the market with oil and we're going to be right back where we were. So once you know, once the frackers have been burned a couple of times like that, they know they're not coming back, and then at that point they may be able to jack the price up. But I think it probably in the next five years or so, we're not going to see gas prices go up probably more than three three twenty five a gallon because of OPEC wanting to keep the the uh, you know the price at the sweet spot where the frackers don't come back yet. But you know anything can happen, and I and I reserve the right to change if there's some unforeseen. Middle East conflict, or World War III, or whatever. But yeah. as the thing stand, as it stands now, it's a battle of the you know the fr- the um, uh, United Arab Emirates was they were the ones that were the uh, one of the primary funders of the movie Promised Land, which was the anti fracking movie with Matt Damon. So you have you got a, a really an unholy alliance between the environmentalists and the Arab oil companies or the oil states. You know, Al Gore made a hundred million dollars off Qatar, one of the largest oil producers in the world to buy current TV so they could turn it into a propaganda piece called Al Jazeera. So it's really an odd alignment these days of environmentalists and oil people trying to get the frackers out of business.
1: Yeah, I just don't see it staying low long term. I would just think that they, if, it, if it, the price does stay low, then they'll want to tax it and somehow they're going to get it back up. So taxes on yeah. the pump
0: or something. It, we could solve all this by drilling everywhere we can. we got enough oil, that we could be completely independent. But we're going to have to... At some point, if we do this, take ourselves off the world oil price, or we're going to be at the whim of every other country that wants to jack it up like the OPEC nations and everything else. And people said, well, we can't do that. I was talking to the folks in the oil industry, and I said, when did we start this world price of oil? They said, well, it was during the oil embargo in the 1970s. I said, that's it. So it's only, you know, we're only talking 40 years that we've been doing He said, "Yeah." I said, what did we do before then? He said, well, it was sort of, you know, every market had its its leveling point. I mean, the American markets paid this, British market whatever, uh, depending on how much oil you could produce and refine and where you could sell it. I said, well, why don't we go back to doing that? He said, we can't go back to doing that. I said, of course we can. Then tell me we can't if we have enough oil in the United States, especially if it's on public land that that, that it, we all own. I would I would pass a law that say if you're drilling on on an anwar or offshore or whatever. That oil has to be refined here and sold here. And then if there's any left over, you can sell it to foreign markets. But if this is our oil and we're allowing the oil companies to drill it, then it ought to be our oil to consume.
1: Yeah, it's huge for security here. And also,
0: man, the jobs that it would bring would be huge. Sure, absolutely. And then we would have relatively cheap oil. We wouldn't need to frack and that would make the environmentalists happy. But then we would, we'd be a mobile society and we would be happy. And these folks wouldn't be happy about (laughs) that because they're fun blockers. They don't like people <laughs> being happy. Box.
2: And we wouldn't have much much reason to be in in, a, in the middle of all them wars over in the uh, Middle East either. You
0: know. It's Bingo! Probably. That's exactly right. There would never be another war over oil again, and that would uh, that should make the peace mix happy. It make make us all happy. So, I mean, that to me, there's no downside of this contrived global warming argument that they come up with, which oh, yeah. is. Uh, Falling apart as we speak. Yeah, because one uh, of
2: one of my biggest memories from the Gulf War was all them uh, oil rigs. They were all on fire. All you could see across the whole desert was oil rigs burning. I was like, I was just amazed. That that's just what the whole thing seemed to be about.
0: That's right. Well, there's no doubt. And look, if you're talking about the the engine that runs the uh, the American economy, it's a laudable thing to fight somebody when they're trying to choke off your energy source. Uh, what we need to be doing is smart enough that we don't have to depend on somebody else for our energy. You still uh, doing the biofuel? I haven't made that in a while, and we <laughs> we can't make it during the winter because it clouds. You oh, know okay. it's, it's too cold to make it. But uh yeah, I, I mean, I haven't made it in a while. But it is, you know, I still got Benny, but I haven't driven Benny to bio bins in a while. But uh, I'm liable to crank it up. But you know, or I mean, right now with gas prices so low, not, yeah, I can it's I, it, I can make it for about seventy-five cents a gallon. But when you got gas or diesel, and diesel's a little more expensive, but when I got gas cars you can buy it at two bucks a gallon. I mean, there's not much sense in making it. Yeah. Cause it is a, it is a bunch of trouble. I can tell you that. Yeah.
1: I remember you were like talking about getting oil. And, uh, was it
0: frying oil or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I used to get it from Vittles restaurant uh, near where we live. And, and, um, you just go get used cooking oil, you know, yeah. and I'd go by there and pick it up, look at it, put it in the trunk of, uh, of Benny DeBio bins and take it over here. I get a little still in the back of behind the cabin here on the property. And, uh, Make up a batch of it and put it in about a 50 gallon drum and, you know, it was great. I mean, we had that, that deal where a hurricane hit. It was after Katrina. It may have been Ike or one of those that hit and cut off the, um, the, uh, o- the gas supply up here. And, uh, you know, there were, there were, um, police tape around all the uh, gas pumps and all this stuff for several days. I didn't miss a beat, man. I had, I had just made a fresh batch the day before and I had enough to last me about a month. And these people were freaking out because they couldn't get gas and I'm riding around and bending the bio bins yeah. and I ain't got no problem. So I mean there is a wonderful feeling of liberty when you make your own fuel like that, but it is a it's a heap of trouble, I ain't taking that. Yeah. It's
1: kinda weird. We're, like I was telling my buddies here, we're kinda interviewing the master of interviews interviewers. So whenever you you got any tips you can give us? Like we got some uh, interviews lined up and
0: Well, you know, everybody's different as as far as that's concerned. Uh, you know, some folks, you know, like to write out a whole list of, of questions and that's fine. I mean, you may want to jot down uh, topics or whatever you want to ask just to, but I normally just have a conversation with folks and you know, you, if, if you have researched your subject well enough that you know him or her and you know what you want to ask, I mean, like tonight, it's been a very, um, It's been a very normal conversation. That's what I like to have. Instead of an interview, I'm having a conversation with folks. I mean, you're just asking me about things that you'd be asking me if we were sitting in Starbucks having a cup of coffee. And so that's That's the way I like to do it. I like to (laughs) conduct interviews and just have a conversation.
1: Cool. We have this thing we do, like the hustling round, where we ask a few questions and you just answer real quick. Do you mind doing that with us? Go right ahead. All right. So got to make a choice here. listening to Michael Moore, Nancy Pelosi. Or get in a root canal? I'd go for the root canal. (laughs) Hannity or Combs? Hannity. Rush Limbaugh or Rush the band from Canada? Uh, Limbaugh. Oh, man. Uh, What about your
0: favorite? uh, You got a favorite vacation spot? I do now. I mean, I've I've grown uh, grown to love uh, Pensacola Beach. So uh, we go there quite a bit now.
1: So I got Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush, or the Comedian Killer
0: Bees. Oh, I got to go for the bees, man. That'd be a hoot <laughs> to have him in there.
1: We had him on the show the other night, and he was talking about how uh, he loved talking to you and every, you know coming on your show and talking to you. So that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, he's a great guy.
1: All right, I'm Mr. Valentine. Valentine. All right, favorite podcast out of Nashville. That'd be you guys, of course. I mean,
0: is there another one?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. All uh, right. I heard you talking about your Hell Yeah 5K. I didn't
0: know if you. Yeah, I was just promoting that. That's the folks at the room in the end. I mean, I just told them that I would give them a the mention on that. That's oh, okay. uh, coming up Saturday, I believe. And that's, you know, they do great work. We, we, uh, we do, um, a deal where they rotate the different churches and they bring the homeless over and, you know, we, we feed them. And our church is one of our Sunday school class. Um, actually sponsors that um and uh, you know for one of the times they come in and so we and usually I volunteer to spend the night'cause um you know everybody's got their thing, you know I can't cook um and you know I don't want to lead a prayer service or preaching or anything like that, but I can sleep, so <laughs> <laughs> I volunteer to sleep with these guys and it's it's interesting that you know we have dinner with them. Sit around afterwards and chat or watch TV or whatever, and then you know they go to bed. But yeah, you know, it's just interesting to get the perspective on where people are coming from. Uh, I, I think that there are a lot of different reasons why people are at that state. Some of them are self-inflicted. Some of them are just people down on their luck. But I think it's incumbent upon us when people are in need and looking for somebody that we're there for. So and and that's all it is. It's a place to stay and a and a, and a meal. And some companionship and some people who care, and so that's what this run is all about—about about what the people at room in the end do. That's what they okay. do every night. You know, we do it once a once a year; they do it every night of the week. Wow,
1: man! That's you awesome. do a lot of great stuff in the community, and also the you do a lot of the Nashville rescue mission and everything. So, you know, want to thank you for everything like that that you do, and I appreciate you taking your time out, man. It's super cool. Yeah, thanks. It hey, is my
0: pleasure, time. guys. I appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. Right. Thanks for. Yeah, thanks a lot. Oh, God. All right, I See you. All right. All right. Bye, bye. All right. That was
1: an awesome show, Phil Valentine from the Phil Valentine Show. What an awesome dude to talk to. Had a lot of good things to say. Uh, really uh, helped with the the state tax and stopping that from coming in here and taking a lot of money out of all of our pockets. And so that was a good show. Mike, tell them who we got coming up next. Oh yeah, next we
2: got. Uh from Comedy Central and Deaf Comedy Jam, we've got Houston's own Ali Sadiq. And then we got, uh, kickboxing champion Rick the Jet Rufus. The Jet. The Jet. Yeah, he is bad. And then after that, we got, uh, former NFL star Bernard Wilson coming on the show. And, uh, if you've got any questions for any of these guests or any other ones, uh, leave them in our comments section on, uh, straighthustling.com. With that information, here's Stu. Hey, okay, y'all. Be sure to check us out on straighthustling.com. That's STR8. H U S T L I N dot com. Uh, you know, like us on uh, Facebook, subscribe to us on uh, iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. We're filling up out there, people. Check out the new stuff coming every week.
1: All right. Once again, I want to thank you for listening to our show. Hope you had a good time. See you next time. Peace. Yeah.